From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Do I believe that there is life out there in the universe on other planets capable of sustaining life? Absolutely. Do I think we'd be lucky enough to bump into somebody who's advanced enough to come this far here at this moment in in the history of the universe? Yeah, I'd be really surprised by that. That's Michael Morell. He's a former career intelligence officer who rose to become deputy director of the CIA, twice stepping in to serve as acting director. Since retiring from the agency in 2013, he's become a prominent voice on issues of intelligence and national security. He hosts the Intelligence Matters podcast and serves as a national security analyst for CBS News. Morell joins me to discuss the subject on everyone's mind, the recent spate of UFOs shot down over North America. He also explains why he thinks the U.S. has entered a Cold War with China and what new technologies like AI and deepfakes could mean for national security. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Businesses count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And whether you're going into your office or working from home, you need an integrated PC solution. You need the unrivaled built for business PC platform that gives you performance, security, manageability, and stability for your entire PC fleet. The Intel V Pro platform. It helps you take care of business and can remotely update, restore, and secure your PCs even if a system is outside of the firewall. Intel V Pro, built for what IT heroes do, built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash IT heroes. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences. So there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user, Keep It Stands. Thoughts on releasing parts of the Georgia Grand Jury Report before indictments are made. So that's a good question. As we've been discussing on the podcast for the last few weeks, there's been a proceeding in Fulton County, Georgia, in which a special grand jury was convened, has apparently prepared a report relating to election interference by Donald Trump and others, allegedly. And now the question is, in the face of motions from a broad media consortium, should that report be made public? Now, to be clear, the judge in Georgia has ordered only a small portion of the report to be made public. Specifically, according to the opinion, quote, these three portions include the introduction and conclusion to the final report, as well as Section 8, in which the special purpose grand jury discusses its concern that some witnesses may have lied under oath during their testimony to the grand jury. What that tells us is the great majority of facts and witness testimony and all sorts of other material will not be made public, at least not immediately. So for the most part, the report will remain under seal. What's sort of interesting about the decision, and maybe interesting to you if you've been following it, was the law in Georgia basically provides 
that if a recommendation is made by the special grand jury to release the report, it shall be released. That's the mandatory language in the relevant Georgia statute, shall be released. And the judge in this matter essentially acknowledges that, citing to the provision, saying if a grand jury recommends publication, the judge shall order the publication as recommended. In fact, the judge notes, facially, the final report should be published in toto pursuant to the statute. And then in my favorite sentence in the opinion, the judge acknowledging reality and other principles of justice and fairness says, quote, but as with many things in the law, it is not that simple, end quote. And the judge basically sides with the arguments made by the DA herself, which is that the process would be impeded and undermined and fairness to potential targets, those as yet not indicted or who may never ultimately be indicted, have not had the ability to defend themselves. As the judge says in the opinion, quote, there was very limited due process in this process for those who might now be named as indictment worthy in the final report, end quote. I think also he may have been moved by the fact that the DA made a representation that indictments were, in her words, imminent. So the harm to the public of non-disclosure would be limited in time and duration. So all things considered, let's see what's in the intro and the conclusion and section eight of the report, but I think it was the right decision. This question comes in an email from Anthony. I'm one of George Santos's constituents. Can anything be done to remove him from Congress? This is, of course, the congressman who's on everyone's mind, who is a lead story in all the talk shows in the evening. People are making fun of him, but he remains one of the 435 members of Congress, notwithstanding multiple investigations into his campaign activities, his financial activities, and notwithstanding the documented lies and lies and lies that he has told to the public. If you can believe it, there's almost nothing that can be done to remove George Santos from Congress unless he leaves voluntarily, other than one mechanism. He can't be impeached. He can't be thrown out by the caucus leader. He can't be thrown out by the Speaker of the House. But there is a provision in the U.S. Constitution, it's Article 1, Section 5, Clause 2, that says as follows. Each House may determine the rules of its proceedings, punish its members for disorderly behavior, and with the concurrence of two-thirds, expel a member. Even a criminal charge or a criminal conviction does not automatically or necessarily remove a congressman like George Santos. There is, by the way, a resolution pending in the House. It's House Resolution 114 that says, resolved that pursuant to that article and clause that I just mentioned, Representative George Santos be and hereby is expelled from the House of Representatives. In the entire history of the House of Representatives, it has only expelled a total of five members ever. So if you look at the slim majority in the House, and that's probably what's keeping George Santos safe, because power is the most important thing to Kevin McCarthy, it seems. Two-thirds of the members of the House is about 290. There are at this moment 213 Democrats. You need all of them, plus 77 Republicans. So I think the likelihood that that will happen and there will be an expulsion is low, and at this moment, zero. Should there be allegations of fraud and perhaps a criminal indictment from the federal authorities, maybe some of those 77 could be won over? Whether we get to 77 plus 213 remains to be seen and is a long way off. And as always, stay tuned. This is an email from a couple, from Phil and Anna, who write, Dear Preet, my wife and I were debating, given the great rapport you seem to have with your guests, that you perform a pre-interview session or conversation before an actual long-form recorded chat to build a comfortable dynamic. I think she's wrong and you're just a good interviewer. Who's right, Phil and Anna? Well, I don't make it a habit of settling disputes 
even good-natured disputes between husband and wife. But thanks for the compliment and thanks for the question. I appreciate it. So putting aside whether or not I'm a good interviewer, you are correct. We do not do pre-interview sessions or conversations. We don't give our questions in advance to any guests. And I don't think there's ever been a guest I've done a pre-interview with, with the possible exception of one government official who I was interviewing on stage at a conference who, for purposes of confidentiality and national security, wanted to be sure that I wasn't going to venture into areas that this person was not permitted to talk about and get in trouble for. But that's five and a half years, no pre-interviews. Now, in fairness, with respect to the rapport I have with guests, with respect to some of them, I know them. I've known them for a long time. They're friends of mine. Adam Grant, Ian Bremmer come to mind, but many others. So I come into the interview knowing them, having socialized with them, having been friends with them, and have a, a feel for how the conversation will go. Not everyone may think about it this way. My view about an interview with someone even someone I've interviewed before, but I'm interviewing them on new topics and, and new developments in the news and the world, is I think spontaneity is lost if you go through that once before the interview. In fact, in the few minutes before we press the record button every week, when I'm talking to a guest through my laptop, we'll sometimes venture into the topics that are going to be discussed. And the guest will start talking about something, whether it's UFOs this week or something else. And I actually have started to cut them off and say, I don't want to talk about it unless we're recording because to do it a second time, I think, takes some of the excitement and energy and, as I said, spontaneity out of the conversation. It's got to be fresh and heard for the first time. And the interactions that happen live in that context, I think, are always best. One other observation about the level of rapport. For the first couple of years of the podcast, I thought it was incredibly important to be in the same room as the guest for purposes of building rapport and having a, a good and, and easy conversational style with the guest. When I had guests from out of town, my first guest, for example, Leon Panetta, I flew to D.C. to interview him. When I had the Pod Save America hosts on Stay Tuned, I flew out to L.A. to interview them. I would travel to people's offices, including David Miliband and Samantha B. When the pandemic happened and we all shut down, we had to move to remote interviews for every single guest. I think every single guest for almost three years has been remote. And you can be the judge better than I can. I feel that even though I'm not in the room with the guests... I think we still have a pretty good rapport. Maybe that's because everyone's gotten used to Zooms and telephone calls as opposed to meeting in person. But I'm sure as you've observed, if you've been a longtime listener of the show, everyone's different. Some people are more forthcoming than others. I find that often people are more forthcoming and more relaxed and more comfortable later in the interview than at the beginning of the interview, particularly if I don't know them. It takes time for people to open up. And the one virtue of having a long-form hour-plus interview with people is it gives them an opportunity to warm up and to get comfortable and talk about things that are difficult and complicated, sometimes talk about things that are very personal to them. And, and I hope that part of the reason it goes well and you enjoy listening to the show is they let them talk at some length in their own words, often without much interruption. So Phil and Anna, thanks for your question. I hope I settled the dispute. Thank you both very much for listening to the show. We'll be right back with my conversation with Michael Morell. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. For a lot of folks, smartphones are a necessary expense. So if there's an option for you to pay a little less money and pay it less often, well, that just might be worth taking. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless plans that range from three months to six months to a whole year. So you don't need to worry about a monthly bill. And they're affordable. Their plans start at just 15 bucks a month, 
and you get unlimited talk and text and 5G data. They have great rates whether you're buying for one or for a family. And at Mint, family plans start at just two lines. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from DraftKings Sportsbook. The big game is almost here, and DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered with a brand new offer. New customers can bet on the big game and turn 5 bucks into 200 instantly in bonus bets. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code PREET. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 58 with code PREET. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and response. Gaming resources. My guest this week is Michael Morell, former acting director of the CIA and one of the country's foremost experts on spying. Mike Morell, welcome back to the show. Preet, it is uh, great to be with you again. Really looking forward to this. Me too. I should note for the audience, for context, that we are recording this on the afternoon of... Tuesday, February 14th, which happens to be Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day, yes, I, which reminds me I need to go out and get a gift for my wife. Okay, let's not put that in the episode. <laughs> let's edit that out. My first question to you, and it's an important one, does espionage tick up on Valentine's Day? Um, you know, I, I think it actually— <laughs> That was a joke, but I think, I, I think, think I've dumbfounded I, you. No, I think you dumbfounded me. Nobody's ever asked me that before. I would imagine <laughs> I would imagine that honey espionage traps. ticks— More honey traps. No, no, no. I, I, I was going to say it actually ticks down, Oh, right? Because you have all these intelligence officers who are 24 by 7 kind of people, right? But the love of their lives, you know, are pretty important to them. So that's sort of the one day where they, you know, take a pause in the business. I'm sure Hallmark is very pleased to hear that. <laughs> and this, some people call this the Hallmark holiday. So I'm very thrilled we have you because of recent events in the news. I also feel a little bit bad for you. As we were discussing before we hit the record button, I imagine a guy like you can't not be asked about the balloon and the UFOs and whether they're balloons. So I'm going to apologize in advance for making you talk about this a little bit, a little bit longer. But are, are, you, are you in fact able over the last number of days, to go anywhere without being just harassed with questions about what's on everyone's mind? Um, I am harassed by my own family. <laughs> <laughs> but that's good. Um, now, they think, now they think that you're important and should be listened to. Um, and I happen to be in a part of the country at the moment in Florida um, where there are a lot of people who watch the evening news and the morning shows. And as you know, I 
work for CBS. And uh, so a lot of people down here in Florida recognize me and they say hello and then they quickly move to asking about the balloons. Have you, have you thought about just having something written up that you keep copies of and just hand it out I, I, <laughs> at the grocery store? I haven't, but, I haven't, but that, pre, that is an excellent idea. Or if, going forward after Thursday, you can just point them to this podcast. Absolutely. Let's do that. So I'm going to try not to ask the overbroad, annoying questions that you get uh, in the produce aisle. We've had the Chinese balloon, surveillance balloon that's been identified. Then we have three things that have been shot down in the last number of days that have not been specifically identified as balloons or otherwise. Do you have, based on your experience and your, your common sense, do you believe that the other three UFOs are also some kind of surveillance balloon or, or could they be something different? I think they could be something different. I think it could be a mix, you know, maybe one, maybe two, or also um, some sort of Chinese unmanned aerial vehicle. But I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, one or more of them were not. Um, the reason I say that is because after the first one, I'm certain that NORAD took the the fine-tuning, so to speak, on their radars and put it to the max, right? Not wanting to miss another. And when you do that, um, you start seeing all sorts of things. And there are weather balloons, right, that are put up and they do their service or they are in a storm and they break away and they start floating around the world. And, you know, that may explain uh, some of these. It's not impossible that after the first one, an individual or two or more, I guess you would call that a conspiracy in your world, you know, wanted to put something up and maybe get some attention or have a laugh, and that's not impossible either. So so where I am at the moment is we know there is one balloon that belongs to the Chinese, and that was the first one. We need to be patient and wait and see with regard to the other three. Further to what you said a minute ago about fine-tuning our, I guess, our aerial surveillance, the fact that three more objects were shot out of the sky does not necessarily mean there is a sudden and broader proliferation of these things. I think what you're saying is it's just that we're detecting them more, and maybe there have been a lot before the last week. We just didn't know about it. Fair? Yeah, and I'd say, yes, absolutely fair. And pre what I would say is that, you know, my top concern here particularly for a former intelligence officer whose entire job is knowing so that you can inform the president about what's happening so that he or she can make decisions to protect the country. For me, the biggest concern is how little we know, right? We don't know exactly what the Chinese balloon was doing, what its role was. We don't know how many of them, we know we, we believe there is a program um, that the Chinese have of spy balloons. Um, we don't know how many. We don't know how long. We don't know exactly what countries they've flown over. Um, and as I said, we don't know what they're doing. We don't know, again, if the three shot down over the weekend are Chinese craft or belong to someone else. And that's, you know, that to me is is my fundamental concern is how little it is we know. And I've read pretty closely the backgrounders that have been done by the White House and by the Department of Defense. And it's very clear to me, and this doesn't happen very often in our government, how little they know, 
right? It's not that they know things that are classified and they're not able to talk about them. They're being very open about how little they know. So let me ask you this question then. Explain to us behind the scenes what is happening. What's the role of the CIA? What's the role of other intelligence agencies? What's the role of the Department of Defense? Who are the people who are scrambling right now to figure out what in the hell is going on because the president every day is wondering when he's going to get answers? Exactly. Uh, So the debris from the first, you know, has now been recovered. I don't know if it's been fully recovered, but, you know, at least a significant portion of it has been recovered. Its first stop, my understanding, will be with the FBI because, you know, this is a counterintelligence issue and that is is their purview when somebody is caught, you know, conducting intelligence on, you know, in our country. Um, I don't think the FBI is going to be able to discern the types of collection systems that are on this thing. So I think, you know, at some point fairly early Early on, it'll be turned over to the intelligence community, and that will primarily fall into the realm of the Defense Intelligence Agency. You know, they're the ones, you know, with some help from CIA, they're the ones who are going to be expert at taking this thing apart and deciding, you know, exactly what's on here, how does it operate, what were they collecting, is there any data right, still on of what they collected so that we can look at it, or was all of that erased, right, when it was sent back to to Beijing. So it'll be the intelligence community's job to figure all of that out and to put together a report for the president and for Congress um, that'll say, here's what we know from what we've picked up, and here are the questions that are still still unanswered. And I would suspect, given my experience, Preet, that that process of analyzing and writing would take at least two months. So I think it's going to be a while before any of us hear an authoritative answer to the question, what is this balloon and what exactly was it doing? And how valuable was it to the Chinese given their other capabilities? What role, if any, would you suspect that human intelligence is playing here? Do we have spies, or would you expect that we have spies on the ground in China or other places that might shed light on this? Or is it is it mostly going to be an excavation based on what remains of the balloon and these other uh, flying objects? We have an aggressive intelligence collection effort as a country, right? Not just as CIA, but as a country um, against China. They are our main adversary. You know, nobody should be surprised that we are spying on China. It includes all of the tools of our intelligence community to include what we call human, right, which is recruiting Chinese to spy on behalf of the United States, spy on their own country on on behalf of the United States. Um, I don't know what our source base looks like in China. Um, And obviously, if I did, I couldn't say. I hope it's robust. But I doubt that that source network you know, if it exists, right, and if it is robust, I doubt that it would be able to help. And I say that because if it exists and it is robust, it would have already told us all about this program, what they were doing, what their capabilities were, and we would know already. And I don't think we do. It's my sense is we don't. So I think it's going to come down to an excavation process of what we 
pull out of the water from the Atlantic Ocean, and then hopefully what we find in the other three sites. I want to go back to something you said at the outset, that based on the backgrounders and the briefing materials you've read, you think our government doesn't know that much as opposed to a situation in which they they know some or, or they know a bunch, but as is understandable, don't want to reveal it to the public. How can you tell the difference between when our government says little, when it's the case that they don't know, or they know and they don't want to say? Well, part of it is just what they say. I mean, John Kirby yesterday actually said, you know, we don't know a couple of times. <laughs> um, so that's the telltale That's giveaway, pretty good. Right? That's pretty good. You're, that's good. Pretty good. You're good, Mike. That's pretty good. You know, <laughs> I was a trained analyst here, Preet. Um, so that was the real cue to me, obviously. Um, but it was also just the tone, right, was not one of being careful about how you talk. They seem to be open about being willing to talk. And you can you can kind of feel the difference a little bit, right? I'm sure you've experienced that, you know, in your own life too, interviewing somebody. You can sense when somebody's open and when somebody's closed. And I, I just had this strong sense that they were being open and telling us as much as they knew. It was a feeling more than anything. Is it fair to say, and I don't mean to cast aspersions, is this an intelligence failure on our part? Um, could be, um, could be, you know, I've heard, you know, by, by just reading the paper, watching the news that the Chinese put this program in place in 2010, you know, created this program in 2010. I was the deputy director of the CIA from 2010 to 2013. I didn't know about this program. I never heard about it. And then clearly we now know that they've been flying a number of these things over the United States, several during the Trump administration and now several during this administration, and we don't know much about it. So I'm careful to throw around the word intelligence failure because the very nature of intelligence is is extraordinarily difficult, right? Because you're trying to put together a puzzle with very few pieces of that puzzle. And, you know, failure somehow sounds like you got all the pieces and you're looking at it and you can't tell what it is. So I don't want to criticize here, but it really sounds as but if- But it's possible. It sounds as if we're coming to the party a little late in terms of understanding exactly what's going on from an intelligence perspective. Put it that way. Okay. So some people have been critical of Joe Biden on the Republican side, but I think there's been some concern- Uh, On both sides of the aisle, the president is not saying more. Is that a fair criticism or or not, in in part because of what you've been saying, that they don't know that much? What's the president really going to say? How do you assess the level of transparency here? I would not, if I were in the White House, um, I would not put any president out if I didn't have something for the president to say. And for the president to go out and say, we don't know very much and basically walked through the list of my things that we don't know, right? That's not being helpful. It's a bad look. Um, it's a bad it's a bad look and I don't think it's it's not in any way calming for the country, right? You want to send the president out and you want to have the president say, here's what we now know and here's what we're going to do about it. And you know, exude confidence um, when you do that. And not knowing is not going to exude confidence. Well could he come out and say as some have said and others have not said, that there's no evidence these are extraterrestrials. I think there's a <laughs> there's a general who was quoted in the New York Post. It's a little bit of a gotcha. I think the general was trying to say, we don't know, and we're not ruling anything out, which a news outlet, I guess, can take to mean we're not ruling out that these are UFOs that have come here from beyond the Earth. 
you can break news here for the first time, Michael. Any reason we can be assured that they're not otherworldly? Preet, when the general said what he said, I actually went back and looked at the transcript because I was interested, right? <laughs> right. Um, right. <laughs> We're interested. I'm you know, guessing it was not a fair interpretation of the transcript. Are we Are we heading into a war of the worlds, right? Um, that would be an intelligence failure, right? But when I looked at it, it was a reflection of what we talked earlier, right? It was a reflection of his frustration in not knowing anything. And so, you know, what he basically said was, you know, here's all the stuff we don't know, so we don't know what this is, and he took it to the furthest limit, right? We don't even know if, you know, these could be aliens, right? Um, so it was a reflection of a frustration in not knowing. That's the way I read it. And a lack of press savviness. Yeah. Look, do I believe that there is life out there in the universe, you know, on other planets capable of sustaining life? Absolutely. Do I think we'd be lucky enough or not, depending on their their motives, we'd be lucky enough to bump into somebody who's advanced enough to come this far here at this moment in, in the history of the universe? Yeah, I'd be really surprised by that. Yeah. Can we talk about your understanding of the efficacy and worth of that first Chinese balloon that we are told had a payload of about, that was the size of about three buses? And explain, I've heard some people talk about it, but I think you, you do a better job. If the Chinese have satellites and we have satellites, what's the extra value of having this kind of a balloon that, by the way, can be seen with the naked eye and fairly easily shot down? So it's a great question. And I think that there's been, and I even suffered from this early on, some lack of critical thinking. If Chinese satellites are as good as ours, there's not much additional value. And I think some of the early statements out of the administration were based on that assumption. Now, if you know or suspect that Chinese satellites are not as effective as ours, not as good as ours, then they could be getting much more value from the balloons. I think the answer to the question is, we don't know. It hit me a couple of days, this hit me a couple of days ago when the administration actually said, you know, we don't think there's much additional value here. And I started thinking about, well, how do we really know that, right? That What's that based on? And sometimes in the intelligence business, people make a big error called mirror imaging, right? Which is um, believing that the other guys thinks the way you think or has what you have. So I don't know how good our understanding is of Chinese satellites, um, but it is possible that they're not as good as either we don't know or they're not as good as we think. And the Chinese are getting significant value out of this in terms of the precision of the photography that they can take, as well as the um, signals intelligence, right? The the electronic emanations that they're able to pick up. Yeah, so I'm going to ask you about that because you did an interview recently where you said you believe that they were collecting electronic emissions from military bases could be conversations between individuals. You don't mean the actual, you know, conversations people are having in a room 50,000 feet below. No. You mean electronic communications that they're having. Yes, so um, communications that are going between cell towers, for example. But how much of that communication is taking place of a sensitive nature at military bases? 
Um, hopefully, very hopefully little. not any, right? <laughs> hopefully, very little. But look, um, people in the national security business can sometimes not be as disciplined as they need to be with regard to conversations that they're having on open phone lines. Um, and you know, we we benefit from that. The Ukrainians are benefiting from that right now significantly with Russian soldiers and Russian commanders talking on on open phones because their more sophisticated communication systems aren't working effectively. And the Ukrainians are taking significant advantage of that. So it should not be that people are having sensitive conversations, but not impossible. The other thing I'd say is um, the other possibility in terms of what they're collecting are, you know, what what we call ELINT, which is electronics intelligence, right? Which is it's just simply electronic emanations coming from a certain part of the base that might be interesting. And so you then task your satellites to look at that particular spot, right? As opposed to, to the whole base, right? Could you kind of zero in on it? So, you know, we call that in the business tipping and queuing, where you you collect some intelligence that allows you then to refine other collection systems, you know, to focus on it. So that's another possibility here. But I have to say, Preet, this is total speculation, right? Total speculation at this point. We won't really know until that analysis that I talked about earlier is completed. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Michael Morell after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, a podcast from Wondery. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon, a diverse group of abolitionists began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, not the senator, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. And in the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by those committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Facing terrible violence, retribution, or even death if caught, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states for those enslaved people who risked the journey, and even went as far north as Canada, where their freedom was assured. You can follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to this season of American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. 37,000, 25, 1. Those numbers might not mean much to you, but if you're looking to get the visibility and control you need to help make the right business decisions, they're the three numbers you'll want to remember. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a cloud financial system that can help streamline your accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. And according to NetSuite, that's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down expenses. And then there's one, because your business is one of a kind. So you can get a customized solution for all of your KPIs. That stands for Key Performance Indicators in one efficient system. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash preet. That's netsuite.com slash preet to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash preet. 
What do you make of some people who are hypothesizing that the balloon is really not about surveillance? It's about sending a message and or testing the American response. Is that silly or does that make some sense? Countries, pre-countries seldom do things for just one reason, and that's probably the case here. So I think it's probably, there's probably three reasons. One is intelligence, right? If you're going to do this for any reason, you might as well collect as much intelligence as you can along the way, right? Two is, I do think, I agree with those who say that there's a political, or I'd say foreign policy reason to do this. Not political, it's not domestic political in terms of the Chinese, but a foreign policy reason. What is that? The foreign policy reason is that we conduct aggressive intelligence collection flights, not over China, not in their airspace, but right on the edge of it, right on that 12-mile limit. And we do it We do it often. We do it several times a week. And we've done it for years. And they don't like it. And they cannot do the same to us because they do not have, they do not have military bases close enough to be able to do it on a routine basis. Um, So what's one way of sending a message that if you can spy on us, you know, close that close to us, we can also spy on you is to have this balloon program. So I do think there's a, there's a message sending here on their part. These reconnaissance flights that we do have always bothered them. And so, yeah, I do. And then finally, I'd say, I don't think we can discount a military reason. They may not have one in mind at the moment. They may be considering one, right? When we first developed, we being the U.S. government, when we first developed drones, they were for intelligence collection purposes. And at some point, somebody said, hey, we can actually put weapons on these things, right? So um, they weren't designed as weapons that they evolved to weapons. And that could be the case here. And in terms of in terms of a military purpose, they can be testing our ability to see them. They can be testing our reaction time. They can be testing our ability to deal with them. Now, I want to be super, super clear here. I don't think that they would ever use one of these balloons as a weapon during peacetime, right? But it wouldn't be impossible for them to think about them as a weapons platform if we ever actually go to war with China. And I would remind people that that Japanese in second, during the Second World War sent, I think, a little less than 10,000 balloons to the United States with these small incendiary devices. And you could think about a China in a war with the United States um, sending more than just incendiary devices, right? If these things get more and more sophisticated. So I would imagine it's a foreign policy reason to send a message, it's intelligence collection, and it opens the possibility of weapons use in the future. Do we have such a balloon surveillance program? And if we don't, is it because of the reason you said earlier that we have other means and methods? Yeah, so anybody's been to Afghanistan or Iraq during the time of the U.S. military presence there will will note that there are a lot of balloons around U.S. military bases. They're on a tether. They're there to collect um, tactical signals intelligence, right? People talking on a phone. They're there for force protection reasons, right? You don't want anybody getting too close to the wire. So we do use balloons in that context. 
during my time, we didn't use balloons um, the way the Chinese are are using them. Um, I doubt that we've started since. And I think the reason is the one you just hinted at, which is we have, you know, very sophisticated spy satellites. There has been some, a, a bit of a political firestorm over the allegation made by people in the Biden administration that these Chinese balloon flyovers were taking place when Trump was in office as well. Trump officials during that time have come forward and have categorically denied it. Do you have any insight as to whether that's true or not? I don't have any insight at all. You know, I believe the Biden administration, when they say that they they did occur during the Trump administration, I think the main point I would want to get across is, can't we please have a single issue that we don't politicize? <laughs> <laughs> please, please, well, please. We're going to get to that in a moment when we talk about the overall policy towards China. And it seems pretty bipartisan. Um, yeah. People are being pretty hawkish. But you said you said something in this interview last week that really struck me. And I'm, I'm just confused. So a question you were asked was, are we making too much of this balloon stuff or is it really a big deal? And you said, we are not making too much of this. This was a very aggressive intelligence collection operation. And when you get caught collecting intelligence in a way that you shouldn't be, that's a big deal. You've already said in the interview, and we you know openly declare that we do all kinds of things, including yeah. fly planes. And we have, I mean, you, you said as a former acting director of the CIA yeah. in, in this podcast, we have a robust, you know, human intelligence program. We have spies. Yeah, yeah. What's the line that you're talking about there? Are there norms? Are there rules? What did they do that they shouldn't be doing? If flying over airspace, right? Is that, is that the red line? Well, it's not a norm, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a norm, but people don't do it. Um, and people don't do it because if you, it's it's very easy to get caught. And it's very easy to either, you know, Francis Gary Powers, right, shot down in the U-2 yeah. um, flying over the Soviet Union, right? It was a time that we did that. Um, and, you know, we got shot down. Um, so that's kind of the red line, not because there's any, there's any norms in the collection of intelligence besides, you know, hopefully some, some pretty strict ethical rules that we follow that I'm not sure our, our adversaries do, but you know, besides that, the main point I was trying to make was the overflight of of um, American territory. Is part of it also, is there an unwritten rule that a nation is not supposed to unduly humiliate or embarrass the other nation or not? Yeah, it's not an unwritten rule. It's, um, it's just being smart, right? One of the values of doing something clandestine is that it doesn't force the other side to respond, right? If it's if it's secret and it stays secret, then the other side doesn't lose face and doesn't feel the need to respond, right? So in a lot of cases, right, when, when folks are caught spying, it's dealt with quietly. Why is it dealt with quietly? It's because you don't want to force the other side to react publicly. And it gives you more optionality. And in this case, are we going to now see a steady stream of F-22s and F-16s shoot down objects in the sky because that's what is now expected? We'll see what these other three are, right? If they're if they're also Chinese craft, that, you know, takes me in one direction. I doubt it. If they're all weather balloons, then, you know, I think we're at the moment, this is going to sound bad, but I think we're, at the moment we're a little trigger happy. Um, probably for political reasons, right? Because the president's being criticized for not shooting one down earlier. Yep. Um, so how do you deal with that? You know, you respond by sh shooting things down. 
And maybe some of these things didn't need to be shot down, right? An old weather balloon does not need to be shot down. Yeah, I think we have to be a little careful here and think through. We got to make sure that when we're shooting something down, there's a good reason to shoot it down. And that could be because it is collecting intelligence, looking for military advantage, or because it is risking commercial airspace, you know, it's fallen to an altitude, that it becomes a hazard, right? But that we just don't start doing that because we feel a need to politically. I know you're not a commentator on on culture or sociology, but, you know, there are reports that suggest the number of UFO sightings are by far the largest in the USA by orders of magnitude. Do you care to comment on that? Does that tell you anything about Americans? Or that maybe all the aliens are more interested in the USA than any other country. <laughs> um, shopping is better here. Um, yeah, maybe I don't know um, Americans well enough. You know, uh, Americans love a good conspiracy theory for sure. You know, people love conspiracy theories because they want to, you know, find easy explanations for things that are actually complex. But I know other cultures that are just as conspiracy laden, right? So I don't know. I don't know why Americans are more open to the idea of aliens than than our other folks. We'll have to wait and see on that. Can, can we zoom out a little bit and and talk about U.S.-China relations? You have said that we're in a Cold War. Do you, that's a pretty strong statement, and it conjures up a lot of images and, and connotations. Yeah. Do you stand by that, number one? And number yes, two, yes. how does this recent series of events, how does it affect that Cold War? So I do believe we are in or entering at minimum a Cold War. It's it's very different than the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. That Cold War was fought over ideology. Soviet Union really did want to spread communism. Um, It was fought over nuclear throw weights, right? Who had the most nuclear weapons and who had the most capable nuclear weapons. Um, And it was fought not directly between the parties, but there were proxy fights all over the planet, right? Africa, Latin America, um, Asia, certainly Vietnam, where the proxies for both sides were fighting or a proxy for one side was fighting the other side directly, right? Think about the Soviets in Afghanistan, think about us in Vietnam. This Cold War is different. This Cold War is not about ideology. The Chinese do not want to spread um, communism or even their version of authoritarianism around the world. Um, We'll get back to what their interest is in a second. It's really being fought over, over two things. It's being fought over influence in the rest of the world, who can call the shots. And then two, it's being fought over the future of high technology, and who can make the most advances the quickest. So those are the areas of competition. And those two areas have become so intense. And the policies of both sides have moved from not just positive steps, right? Things that are acceptable under the rules of the international order, but are now negative, right? So so it's the United States imposing tariffs on China. It's the United States imposing uh, technology restrictions on China, right? It's the Chinese stealing intellectual property, right, to advantage 
their country economically. It's the Chinese, you know, using a coercive foreign policy to get what they want overseas. So that's what I mean by a Cold War. We see each other as each other's fundamental challenge going forward, and we're both reacting to that in efforts that are fully consistent with the international order, like building allies, particularly by the United States, but we're also reacting to it in ways that, you know, undermine free enterprise and undermine free trade. And that's the aspect of it that kind of worries me the most. I guess one of the reasons the use of that term is jarring to some folks is it invokes the period of time when we were in a Cold War, the only other Cold War in the modern era that is ever described by using that term, the Cold War with the USSR. And for me, as a child during that time period, the defining feature of that Cold War was the potential any moment of complete and total annihilation of, of human beings on the earth through nuclear war. You're not suggesting that there's any threat of that magnitude in this Cold War, are you? Not at the moment, but let me let me say Not some, at the moment, that, Mike. No, it's not Valentine's at the moment. Day. I know it's Valentine's Day, but you know I'm an intelligence <laughs> Talk officer about love. and it's an I'm an intelligence officer and you always go right to the darkest corner of the room. You know, there's this joke at CIA and the joke is, you know, when when analysts smell flowers, they ask where the dead body is. Um, <laughs> it's actually uh, true that they do say that. We pause at this at this moment <laughs> in the podcast was everyone and their loved ones, a very, very happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> happy Valentine's now, Day. Now pe- people are literally thinking, I shouldn't have gotten flowers for my significant other. <laughs> I guess you don't do that in the, in the agency. The, people don't give their spouses flowers. You can't, right? You can't because it conjures up an image, particularly if your spouse also works there. <laughs> um, so here's what I would say. I'd say two things. One is the Chinese are aggressively building their nuclear weapons program. They are aggressively adding numbers of warheads, and they are aggressively adding to the sophistication of the delivery systems of those weapons. For the longest time, the Chinese were satisfied with a pretty small arsenal. I don't know if I'm allowed to say the number where they used to be, so I'm not going to do that. Just say it. But small. (laughs) Um, Now they're in a different place. Now they believe that they need to have not necessarily parity, But they need to be in a place where if we ever did find ourselves near a conflict or in a conflict, that we would have to think about the Chinese ability to attack our homeland in a nuclear war scenario. So they're heading toward a much larger arsenal. That's point number one. The second point I would make is, and this is really important, the second point I'd make is, The United States and the Soviet Union, even before the Cuban Missile Crisis, but certainly it was reinforced by the Cuban Missile Crisis, and this was even true more after the Cuban Missile Crisis, we knew that we could never fight each other directly. And we never did, with one exception, which I'll come back to. We both made that decision that we couldn't fight each other directly because we were so worried about if that happened, there would be a significant risk of escalation to nuclear war. And so we agreed that the only way we would would fight each other is through proxies. 
And we never did, with one exception, and that's when a small number of Russian forces ran into a small number of U.S. forces in Syria a few years ago and actually fought it out. And the United States, you know, was quite successful. But that was it in the entire history of the Cold War, actual combat between the United States and the Soviet Union. And it was because we both understood the risks. And what's striking to me is how openly we talk about coming to the aid of Taiwan you know, in a scenario where the Chinese are attacking, how openly we talk about combat with China. And I think people need to start thinking about, huh, I wonder if that makes sense, you know, given where the Chinese are headed with regard to their nuclear arsenal. I just want to make clear to all the listeners who may be curious, I also do all my fighting through proxies. <laughs> that's that's been my approach. Going back to the, it's been my approach ever since third grade, actually. <laughs> it's like, hey, Tommy, can you come like over to here? Keep my hands clean. <laughs> do we face? You think, um, even though these are low likelihood scenarios, a greater chance of a nuclear threat from China or for from a rogue state like North Korea? I think there's a. It's a great question. I think there's a greater risk of the use of nuclear weapons by not a P5 member, right? So not China, Russia, the United States, Britain, or France. Um, I think if someone were to use a nuclear weapon, it would most likely be, you know, a non-permanent five member, um, non-Security Council member. You know, it would be a Pakistan, or it'd be an India, it'd be a North Korea. And it wouldn't probably necessarily be against us right? In a Pakistan-India conflict, it could be between the two of them. But I just think it's it's less likely that the major nuclear powers would have a nuclear war given that they can destroy each other. And everybody knows that, right? Which is the ultimate, hopefully the ultimate cap on this thing. Going back to the balloon for a moment and the balloon program, given the fraught relationship between the U.S. and China and the possibility of mistake and your description of our relationship being one of a Cold War status. Is there any possibility that the balloon situation was not known to or not authorized by Xi? No way. No way, right? No way. No way. She's in charge, right? There's no doubt about that. He's the president of the country. He is the head of the Communist Party, and he is the head of the Central Military Commission. And, and in China, there are no rogue elements there where they're taking significant risks without telling the boss or they think he needs plausible deniability. He's in control. He's in command of everything. Yes. Um, and in fact, in terms of the rogue elements, I have no doubt that that's not the case here. When she took power, he removed many different individuals, um, both outside the military and in the military. He basically did a series of purges using um, using corruption as a context, and he removed people that he was not confident in politically, and he put in their place, including in the military, people he knew who were, who were loyal to him. So I do not believe there's any chance, you know, super small chance, right, never say never, that um, this is the military um, acting to undermine she. I think what's more likely here is that she approved the program. The program's been underway for a number of years. There's never been an issue before. And the approval process for individual flights, you know, might not have reached his level. You know, in the United States, when we do a aggressive, 
intelligence collection operation. I'm not talking about flying over people's territory because we don't do that. But when the United States does a aggressive collection program, the National Security Advisor approves it, right? So the National Security Advisor has an opportunity to mention it to the president. Um, that may not be the case there. I mean, possibly she has delegated you know, approval for individual flights. Um, one thing is certain, the PLA, People's Liberation Army, does not talk to the Chinese foreign ministry. Uh, there's not a kind of warm relationship there. There's not great communication like there is in the United States between the Defense Department and the State Department. So it's quite possible that the foreign ministry was working on the Blinken visit and the PLA didn't know it. Um, that's that's quite possible. And they, you know, launched, launched a balloon um, without needing to go to Xi and found themselves in this mess. Is there some possibility that someone in China is going to get in trouble over the balloon incident or at least be made to be in trouble for some face-saving purpose? Or do you think the Chinese don't care that they had their balloon shot down? In other words, is there going to be a scapegoat here? So I don't think there, I don't think there needs to be. Um, Let me say that first. I think for two reasons. One is, is domestically, the Chinese are very aggressively, and I'm probably overusing that word aggressive here in this interview, but the Chinese domestically have been aggressively, since since the balloon incident, have been aggressively selling the idea that um, this was indeed a Chinese weather balloon. This was indeed a weather balloon that was off course, and those terrible Americans shot it down, right? Um, they're selling that domestically. That's the view in China. So it's not like somebody needs to lose their job or the Chinese need to respond to the United States in order to satisfy domestic politics. That's kind of point one. Point two is there's value in the Chinese having gotten caught here, right? There's value in the Chinese forcing the United States now to worry about these flights, right? And to talk about these flights endlessly, and so again, really, really no need for them to find to find a scapegoat. The image I have in my mind, Preet, I had to tell President Obama a couple times that, you know, something that we were doing that he knew about, that he actually knew about in advance that didn't go well. And, you know, he wasn't the happiest camper in the world, right? Even though he knew the risk going in, he wasn't happy to hear that it wasn't going well. And the image I have in my mind is a group of military officers in Xi's office, and they're talking about this this one balloon, right? The one that was shot down, and they're explaining, you know, what this collection operation was all about. And, and of course, he approved it in the broader program, but not the individual flight. And then somebody says, oh, by the way, Mr. President, there are three more, right, that are out there that you need to know about, right, um, that we've launched since, right? You don't want to have to be the person to say that. Not that that person's going to lose his job, but that's not a fun moment for that person. We were talking earlier about the bipartisan hawkishness in America towards China. And here's a phrase I've heard people both on the Democratic side and the Republican side say in recent weeks, that China needs us more than we need China. Is that correct? I don't think so. Um, We both need each other. I don't want to put a, a relative value on either side. Um, we are huge trading partners of each other. We are dependent on each other for some very important products that we sell to each other. Right. That, that's another deeply 
distinguishing feature between this Cold War and the last one, right? Yes, yes. And which is one of the reasons why you wouldn't want to go to war, right? And they wouldn't want to go to war with us. You know, not only the risk of nuclear escalation that we talked about earlier, but a major military conflict between the United States and China would result in a global depression um, as trade shut down between the two largest economies in the world and as trade shut down in most of East Asia because insurance rates skyrocket, right, in the face of combat on the high seas and in the air over East Asia. So, yeah, I don't want to put a value on it. We both need each other. Interestingly, you know, there's this concept called decoupling, and both I was going to ask you about that next. That's not realistic, right? It is, right, in a very narrow sense that we can reduce our dependence in, in some particular area. But in a macro sense, no, it's not realistic. But both sides still see value in reducing their dependence on the other for some very important products. I want to not ask you about classified documents and Marla, because sure. you know what? Um, sure. Can I, I say I'm, something about these classified documents? Do you want to? If you want to, yes. yes. I, I was going to talk I about do. something that's forward-looking, but yeah, say your piece. I was going to spare you, but go ahead. I do. So it's now clear to me, right? So you've got Trump, Biden, Pence. It's now clear to me that there's a systemic problem here, right? This is not an individual problem. Trump didn't pack his own boxes. Um, Biden didn't pack his own boxes. Pence didn't pack his own boxes. Staff did. Um, and clearly nobody who had any authority over classified information, who had any records-keeping responsibility, looked in those boxes before they left. And so let's stop making this a political issue. Second time I've said that. And let's start fixing the problem and, you know, I, I actually tweeted about this. I actually said, I actually said, you know, there's a very simple fix, right? If a box is going anywhere but the National Archives, then a records person should go through it to make sure there's no classified information. And then once that person's made that determination, you put, you know, you put some tape on it that it can't be opened again, period. Let's move on to the next problem. Well, so now I have to ask you the follow-up based on how you just described the events and, and the, the situation with respect to those three former folks from the White House, does that mean you have a view that Donald Trump in no way, shape, or form is criminally responsible? I'd be shocked. I mean, you're the expert here, right? But I'd be <laughs> shocked if the Justice Department, you know, brought a mishandling case against any of these three individuals. What about an obstruction case? Obstruction case is different, right? Yeah, so yeah. that's what's that's what's different with regard to the three individuals, right? Is once Trump and knew he had him. He didn't want to give him back, right? And you know, people said some things that weren't true, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think if anybody's going to be charged with anything, it's going to be Trump and obstruction. It won't be mishandling of classified documents. Okay. I want to move on to something that's been on my mind, and we've talked about it on the podcast with various people, including our mutual friend Ian Bremmer, and that is the way in which technology is going to affect the world. And since I have you, I want to talk about the way that certain technologies, and I'll name them in a moment, what the impact will be on the intelligence community, on espionage, on collecting intelligence. And those are artificial intelligence, the rise of easily made deep fakes, and quantum computing. I'm going to talk about deep fakes first. And you've written about this and talked about it, and I know you think about it. What does it mean for us to live in a world in which deep fakes, meaning 
audio or visual representations of people doing and saying things that look real, but that are actually manufactured, what impact will that have in your line of work? It creates a situation where disinformation is potentially much more powerful, right? If you can have the president or prime minister of a country say something rather than have you know, a third party say it, then that becomes a powerful tool. It would be a more powerful tool for our adversaries because we believe they routinely use disinformation. We as a country tend not to like disinformation because we think information, right, true information is a more powerful propaganda tool. So it would probably, in a world of deep fakes, where deep fakes were effective, you know, help the adversaries more than us. But I would say that as hard as some people are working on deep fakes, other people are working just as hard on the ability to identify them. And I know who's going to win. Number that? of um, it's probably going to be, you know, a back and forth kind of thing, like like cyber, right? So offense gets to move first, and then defense has to catch up, and so. Offense will always be a little bit ahead. Right, but it depends on who you're trying to... So let's say you have the U.S. intelligence community comes across a deep fake and they want to tell the world it's a deep fake. And so they have their own computing ability. And as you describe it, maybe they'll be able to definitively determine that that thing is a deep fake. But that only matters if people have confidence and trust in our intelligence community, right? Mm-hmm. So what's to... We, we live in a country of conspiracy theorists in a world of right. conspiracy theorists. Right. So I, I guess I'm wondering, what is even the value? Once you have the ability to make the yeah. deepfake, what is even the value of a government entity stating that it's a deepfake? Maybe they're lying. So you can't just state it, right? I learned this, you know, when I was a senior at, at CIA. Um, you can't just walk out and do a press, press backgrounder and say, hey, we believe that this balloon, the first balloon that was shut down was a Chinese intelligence craft. Thank you very much. This meeting's over, right? You have to show some like. You have to you have to give some reasons why you believe it to be an intelligence craft. You, you have to answer their questions, right? You have to be open to those questions or they're not going to believe you. And so I think it's not just a matter of standing up and saying, hey, this is a deep fake. We know this is a deep fake. Believe us. It's we're going to have to explain how we came to that conclusion and actually and actually show some ankle. Not just leg. Not just leg. Maybe, le- you know, maybe ankle's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> what about artificial intelligence? I mean, I have this, this crazy vision of, of a general somewhere or a CIA officer somewhere asking Chad GPT to help come up with the approach to someone to flip them into being a spy for the U.S. or an asset for the U.S. What's your sense of how AI is changing your former world? Not as much as some other things. And the reason I say that is because human beings, particularly those making decisions that are that carry so much significance, right, possibly life and death, aren't going to go with the answer that a chat GPT gives them, right? So an analyst isn't going to say, or or some AI algorithm isn't going to come to an analyst and say, you know, we think the Russians are going to invade Moldova in the next two weeks. You're not going to take that and run and show that to the president and say, 
an AI algorithm gave this to us, right? Analysts will never operate that way. They'll always want to understand, you know, why is the AI algorithm coming up with that answer? What data does it has it identified? How is it putting it together? That is what will be valuable to analysts. The answer itself will be a guide to looking at what's important and how that important data was put together. So I don't think that will have anywhere near as much impact as some of the other things that are happening. The military side may be different, right? I'm just talking about the Intel side. And then finally, quantum computing. What is the effect of that race towards a finely working quantum computer mean for encryption? It would make obsolete the kind of encryption we have today. And what's important about that is not that it would make communications and data going forward easy to decrypt, because once you have a quantum computer, your ability to encrypt them um, to quantum standards will be much greater. Right. We have that, we have that technology now. And are we engaged in a process of encrypting going forward? Yes, yes, quantum resistant. But here's the big issue. Countries for some time have been, you know, sucking large amounts of data from their enemies, from their adversaries. And putting them in the freezer. And, that, and put it in the freezer, <laughs> right? right? Yep. And it's, it's encrypted and you can't read it today. But once you have a quantum computer, because it is old crypto, right, you're going to be able to read that stuff. That's a huge deal that almost nobody knows about, that there's going to come a time where there will be, you know, medical drugs, pharmaceuticals, other intellectual property secrets, including the formula to Coke. All of that is in a freezer somewhere in China, right? Right. And it will all become publicly available right. at some point. Right. That's almost, that's not a hypothesis. That's a certainty. That will happen, right? Now, when it happens, I think, is is really open to debate. There are some people who think quantum's right around the corner. Um, there's other people who think it's way off, right? I'm, I'm probably more with the latter group than I am with the former group. This is really hard. But yes, somebody will get there someday. Um, hopefully, it's us. You know, we should have a Manhattan Project around this, I think. Maybe we do. I don't know. But we should be going at this as hard as we possibly can because of the implications that we just talked about. Well, I've kept you a very long time. I want to get you back to all that reading that you do every day. Michael Morell, once again, happy Valentine's Day. Thanks for being on the show. Preet, happy Valentine's Day. Take care. My conversation with Michael Morell continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week with a story about two American patriots. To my great delight, both of them have been guests on this podcast. They are in different fields, but both stand for good. One is Representative Jamie Raskin. He is, of course, the congressman for Maryland's 8th Congressional District. He was the lead impeachment manager in the second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. And, of course, he served in the select committee to investigate the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. In 2020, Raskin lost his son, Tommy, to suicide. Tommy was an activist and student at Harvard Law School who for years had battled mental illness. As if he hadn't been through enough, last December, 
Raskin announced he was diagnosed with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which he called a serious but curable form of cancer. He's now undergoing chemotherapy. And as happens with this type of treatment, it's caused him to lose his hair. So he's been coming to votes and hearings in Congress, donning bandanas around his head. They look quite nice, I must say. However, there was a bit of controversy on Twitter after a user stated in a since-deleted tweet, Kevin McCarthy has insisted Jamie Raskin remove the headscarf he is wearing because chemotherapy has caused his hair to fall out. But happily, it wasn't true. A spokesman for Raskin debunked it. The spokesman clarified to the Associated Press that Raskin, quote, had received nothing but support and encouragement from all of his colleagues and leaders on both sides of the aisle, end quote. How quaint. Now, I have to admit, when I saw this bandana look on Representative Raskin, I had one immediate thought. Many others did also. Who is another American patriot who sports that iconic look? Well, none other than Stevie Van Zandt, a.k.a. Little Steven, star of stage and screen, guitarist for the E Street Band, an actor who played Silvio Dante on The Sopranos. And then, of course, it happened. Representative Raskin broke the news in a tweet on February 11th. The great Stevie Van Zandt had sent the congressman a gift. Yep, it was a bandana. A dark, paisley-patterned bandana. Raskin tweeted, quote, Look what I received from one of the greatest musicians on earth. A gift I will treasure almost as much as his song, I Am a Patriot. You are about to see a step up in my chemo head cover fashions for the next few months. Rock on, Stevie. Keep spreading the light. End quote. And Twitter erupted with love and support for the congressman. One user said, Jamie Raskin rocking the Van Zandt headscarf is all I needed to see today to complete my day. Another said, from a guy who rocks the house, a gift to a guy who rocks the house. Thanks for all you do, Jamie Raskin. Godspeed. Get well soon. It was moving, this outpouring of support and well wishes for Representative Raskin. And this is another story that shows you how many good and empathetic people there are in the world. From all of us here at CAFE, we wish you a speedy recovery, Representative Raskin. Keep rocking those bandanas. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Michael Morell. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.